As Christians, we know that this world is not our true home. We know the biblical command to love God and turn away from the idols of this life. But what does that look like practically? And does that mean that we shouldn't enjoy the good gifts of this life like a relaxing vacation, a beautiful home, or delicious food? Sometimes, if we're honest, living in the tension of being in the world but not of it can feel like an impossible, confusing task. My guest today is Joe Rigney, and in our conversation, we talk about how to navigate this tricky issue. Joe shares about how John Piper and others have influenced him over the years, helping him learn that enjoying God includes enjoying the good gifts that he puts around us. Joe serves as a fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College. He's a husband, a father of three, and the author of a number of books, including Strangely Bright, Can You Love God and Enjoy This World? from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I think all Christians at times wrestle with the tension that we feel between loving God, first and foremost, and loving and enjoying the things of this world that are all around us, whether that's good food or a spouse or our children or even just a favorite hobby or activity. And so I think that's it's probably a universal Christian struggle to some extent, but it seems like in our circles, kind of the Reformed evangelical circles, and maybe even more specifically, those of us who have been shaped by the ministry of John Piper and some of his teaching about desiring God above all else and, and seeking to honor and glorify God, that maybe this can sometimes feel like a particular challenge to think about. So I guess I wonder to start us off, can you share a bit about how you first encountered John Piper's teachings and this idea of Christian hedonism and how all that has kind of shaped your own theology? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was right before high school. Well, actually, I think it was actually in college, probably my freshman year of college is when I first really began to listen to Piper. This will date, date me, but um, I was uh, listening to Piper sermon. I was, I was ripping Piper sermons off the internet through Napster. <laughs> uh, so that's that's where it all began. That that uh, does date you. It's okay though. It, it does. So you know the kids these days are like, what's that? But but Napster was a thing. It was like music sharing, but there was also sermons. And so I, I was in college in two, about two thousand one and started. And somebody had recommended it and said, I think you'd like this guy. And so I started listening to sermons and I was just blown away. And the thing was that I had um, in the previous in my senior year of high school into the summer before college um, had really Lord had done a great work in my life kind of just on it on through the word through pastors in my local community where I had really kind of leaned into the delight yourself in the Lord as the deer pants for streams of water that sort of stuff and so when Piper came along with God is most glorified when we are most satisfied it was just yes this is it hmm. um, I, I was already primed for it and he just gave it real clear language and categories that I didn't have and just built it out and it was really a kind of you know you go off like a bottle rocket spiritually and that's what happened. It just felt like the world opened up. It was the Bible broke open in fresh ways. Um, the glory God felt was seen to be much bigger and more satisfying. And so that was kind of where, where it all began uh, when I was in college back in 2001 uh, or so. And so that was, Joe, that was the cultures. Joe, really quick. So unpack that a little bit more, because I think we often hear that from many people who talk about Piper's impact on them, and more than just Piper himself, but some of these doctrines, this big vision of God. What do you think it is about um, that big vision that 
was so compelling, has been so compelling and influential for so many of us, if you had to kind of articulate what's going on there? Yeah, I think there, there was a sense in which most of us grew up in church. And, you know, for like, so I, I grew up going to church, believed the gospel when I was uh, embraced Christ when I was about 11 or 12, and then had, the, had a typical sort of youth group upbringing in, in Texas. And, and a good one. I am I, very grateful for the way that I was discipled and invested in throughout my high school years. And, uh, and it was all good. And I actually had, I had my pastor was actually very influenced by Piper, um, though it wasn't the sort of thing that he would quote in sermons. But after the fact, realizing like, oh, some of these seeds were planted there without me knowing it. And I think it was uh, honestly like the clarity of it. It was the clarity which with John opened the Bible and demonstrated that God really did do everything for his own sake, but that that was not to the exclusion of my joy, but was in fact the means of my greatest happiness. Hmm. And, and so I, you know, the, I want, I want to be happy and God says I should live for his glory. How do those relate? And it's the God is most glorified and we're most satisfied. And that just, it just registered. I mean, the grace of God just, it just registered with, with the soul. It resonated in a deep and profound way. And then I think further from that is because it was so, biblical because it was it just sent you into the text and you could see it for yourself you could see it again and again from genesis to revelation why god does everything he does and how he's aiming at our ultimate and highest good and wants to to fill us with himself because that's what we were made for and so i think that's you know it just it just fits reality and it was a it was a big and glorious uh vision that took hold for me in my college years and what led me to come to bethlehem you know, back in 2005 to, uh, to pursue uh, seminary. So then how does that theology, that big theology of God and his glory as supreme and desirable above all things, how does that then come into contact with this question of wrestling with how much we love God versus enjoying the things of the world? Right. So, so then what it did, not, you didn't realize it at first, but what, some of what John had said it was like it went off in the soul, and, and then the question is, okay, so I'm, I was made for God. I was made to know and enjoy him. And there was a sort of, and not his gifts, not his gifts. So you're made for him, not his gifts. And so then the question became, well, then what am I supposed to do with them? And this was a kind of slow burn kind of question, I would say, because John addresses it in some of his books, for sure. He talks about, you know, marriage and, you know, earthly life and some things like that. And so it was there, but I know for my for me there was just this tension that I felt between sort of the the God-centeredness, right? Whom have I in heaven but you and on earth there's nothing I desire besides you? And then just the simple and inescapable fact that I did I did in fact desire other things. Now and I and it was how do I reconcile that? Like mm. I do love my friends, I do need food and I enjoy it. Um I have hobbies. Um there's I'm surrounded on every side by delightful things that God made. What, how does this work? And so I think that there were some, those tensions began to, to come into play. I think uh, it also spilled into, for me, my own thing was, um, you know, John was a, a very, in, you know, insistent on a biblical approach to uh, wealth, generosity, a wartime mentality, you know, this life is war, God is sovereign. And so how do we steward the things we've been given towards the, the war effort, so to speak, you know, the advance of the gospel, that idea of wartime for me, at least, became very, uh, what I would describe now as very narrow. And so it was, I didn't know, I didn't know how to engage with things that, that I couldn't immediately and intuitively see how do these go to the war, 
And, uh, and so that was causing some dislocations in me, it, it, causing dislocations in my early marriage of, uh, you know, there's a, I think there's a story I tell in things of earth about one of my first classes here at Bethlehem where I was talking, I just got married and I told, tell, you know, go, the, introduced myself to one of the pastors here and said, I'm Joe, I just got married. Uh, things are going pretty well. I can't figure out why, uh, why candles are so important. Cause we were my, you know, my wife and I were having these discussions about, you know, she would buy, we had lights in our house and lamps and she would buy <laughs> Like them, and I was like, "Why are we doing? Why are we in my head? This is you could see the distortion here. Why are we wasting money on candles?" Hmm. And uh, and so we'd had these kind of jokes, and I kind of made a joke about it and said, "I don't get why candles are so important, but uh, here we go." And the pastor, Pastor Sam Crabtree here at Bethlehem, looked just looked right back at me, and said, "You don't know why candles are important?" And I was taken aback a little bit, said, uh, "Uh, no." And he goes, "Because she is." And it was like, a, I mean, I can, you know, I can still feel the, <laughs> the bomb. <laughs> but it was, it was unearthing that something as I had received, it had kind of gone wonky that I'd, I'd missed something. So all of that was churning in that experiential tension. I saw it in the Bible because you do have the nothing I desire beside you. And then God gave everything for our enjoyment. Nothing's to be rejected. It's received with Thanksgiving in first um, Timothy four and first Timothy six. And so, and so there was this kind of low-grade guilt when I would enjoy things because I wasn't enjoying God, quote-unquote, enough. And all of that was, I think, kind of running in the background. And then uh, somewhere around probably 2010 or so, 2009, 2010, a couple of things came together for me. And that, so that's where all of the, my own working in the scriptures, seeing more how um, God reveals it's actually revelation. Like the world is is revealing. It's not just that the Bible is revelation. It's that the Bible is special revelation, but everything is revelation. Everything is telling us what God is like. And so at that time, I think also Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, there was a, I remember at one point reading a, a section from a book by Fred Sanders, actually, Deep Things of God, in which he kind of described the difference between a, a reductionist approach to Christianity that, that majored uh, that took the points of emphasis, Bible, cross, salvation, heaven, and it made the, those points of emphasis the whole story. And his com commendation was that that's reductionistic. Instead, what you want is that is the main point of the story. But that means that there's if there's a main point, it means there's all of this other kind of background points that really help to support and make the main points. And uh, and it kind of gave it air. And so all of that was happening in the kind of the 2009, 10, 11, 12 in me that eventually became the wrestling uh, that produced Things of Earth and then later uh, Strangely Bright. Hmm. It seems like one of the other things that can be in the air for Christians is this constant fear of idolatry, right? That's kind of part of this story. And I, I think back to times in youth group when we'd be reading through the Old Testament and we come across all these stories of Israel's idolatry turning to the idols of the land and God rebuking them for that. And so often even wrapped up in our interpretation of the Bible is this desire to kind of learn from that, apply those examples to our own lives. And most of us are not really being tempted to, to worship Baal on some, in some little monument somewhere. So instead, we take that and we look at all of God's good gifts, and we, we say how those can be idols. So do you ever wonder if we've trained ourselves to actually look at the good gifts around us less as good gifts from God and more as potential idols? Um, is that yeah. part of this story? Absolutely. And I, I remember, I think in one, in, you know, one, again, those catalyst moments for me, I remember a distinct story, I think, that was in one of those Wilson posts where he talked about kids on, th on Christmas. And if a parent gives a child a gift, and he know, if a parent knows his kid really well 
and gives the kid the gift that he knows. Yeah. If I give my son a gift, I know he's just going to love. You know, he's a real kind of wonky kid, loves to engineer stuff. You give him a Rubik's Cube and he just know he's going to be he's going to play with that for hours and just be delighted. And it would be like if you did that and then the kid kind of tossed the gift away and gift away and said, but dad, what I really love is you. And uh, and it was kind of like, well, yeah, I'm glad for that. I want the I want that acknowledgement. It is that is what this is about. Ultimately, at some level is the relationship. But what I really did, what would have delighted me as a dad is that you would play with the toy and be delighted by the gift. And so I think and that what that what that led me to then throwing me back into the scriptures was that in uh, Romans one, the two great sins that Paul describes there as a fundamental to our truth suppression. What can be known about God is evident to us in the things that have been made, the made things make him visible, his invisible power, his attributes. But then he says, but we don't honor God as God or give thanks. And what what struck me in all of these wrestlings was there's two sins there and they're both important. One of them is idolatry, which I think you're articulating there is that we're aware we see how the gifts can become idols. We can elevate them, make them the main thing. Um, We can not pursue them back to the source. So that's idolatry. That's a real danger. And we ought to be fearful of it. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But the other thing there is ingratitude. And ingratitude presumes that, you know, you say, I don't need the gifts. I don't want the gifts. I'm not going to say thank you for the gifts. And instead, Paul is committed. So if you flipped it around and you said, so what does God want from us? Given that he's revealed himself in the things that have been made, he wants of us to worship him, to honor God as God. He's ultimate. And to give thanks, which means receive the gifts, enjoy the gifts, and then give thanks to him for the gifts. And it was that picture that felt to me like it, gave, it, it filled out for me personally, and then now I hope for others in these books, that both of those are, are essential to honoring and glorifying God. And you, if you lose either of them, it's going to be twisted and distorted. Hmm. Okay, so that's a helpful articulation of maybe the two ditches that we can fall into, idolatry on the one side and ingratitude on the other side. Uh, I wonder if you could help us see what, what might that look like. So what are some of the warning signs that we are falling too in love with the world, that we are falling into idolatry uh, in light of the things that God has given us? Yeah, so one of the, in, in the reflectings that led to the, the book, and it shows up in, in both of them, is uh, a recognition of our creatureliness and the fact that we live in time and we can't do everything all at once. And so kind of just an ownership and embrace of that led me to realize, develop, I gave these two categories of um, uh, direct godwardness and indir- what I call indirect godwardness. And this is, I think, probably one of the best ways to test, uh, the first ways to test anyway, whether you're doing it, is direct godwardness is when your attention, your mental, emotional attention is directed to God directly. Um, so that would be uh, when you're praying, um, when you're reading the word, meditating on the word, maybe when you're here listening to a sermon and so you're singing praises, those sort of things are what I would call direct godwardness. He's the direct object of your attention. Indirect godwardness then is all of the other stuff. So it's what you and I are doing right now and having a conversation. Um, it's what you're doing when you're eating your food. It's what you're doing when you're playing with the kids, when you're doing your work. That's, and I say it's indirect godwardness because the idea is you're going up to God directly. So you pray, you read the word, you, you go to him directly as ultimate and supreme. And then what he's doing is sending you back out into the world, into the, the world that he's made and that he's put you here for a purpose and designed you um, to make him known and to raise your kids and all that sort of stuff. 
and he sent you there and it's indirect. So he's present with you, even if he's not the immediate object of your attention. And so the way that I kind of gauge this is how are both of those doing? So when I think about testing, it's, is there a real richness and do I want to pray? Do I want to go to God directly? Do, do, I, do I bring my concerns to him? Do I praise him? Um, do I read his word for edification and correction and all of the things, you know, teaching or reproof and correction, exhorting all the things that the Bible is supposed to do for me? Do I read it as food to eat? And then pray. Am I regularly going to him with prayer in the mornings when I wake up, when I go to bed at night, and then all throughout the day before I do an interview like this? Am I, Lord, help me, give me words. So am I going to him? That would be one test. And that's the test of, is this idolatry? Am I falling into idolatry? Because idolatry would be, I'm relying on my own strength. I don't need God. I don't want God. I don't want to be, he's not in the picture. That's Mm -hmm. idolatry. The flip side is, what does that do to everything else? How am I with my kids? How am I with my wife? How's work going? Do I, am I throwing myself into it? Am I enduring the hardships? And so is it having that effect? Am I grateful? Am I walking around just going, look at all of the good things in my life? How, this is ama- how good is God? Am I drawing on the strength of my devotional and engagement, direct engagement with him for these other things? Is, it, is, there a, uh, is there a real joy and hope in the midst of all this stuff? So that kind of the baseline way of that, those rhythms of what I call rhythms of Godwardness, up to God, out in the world, up to God, out in the world. That's kind of the basics of how it's supposed to go. Now, the other, the other big piece here, I would say, maybe there's two that I would say in terms of tests would be uh, generosity. So that, th- and this is a test of, do you, are you loving the things too much and you're just hoarding them for yourself or are you gladly spending and being spent for others? So that could be your family and it should spill the banks of your family into your church and into the world. But are you generous with what God has given you? You're you're receiving it and you're receiving it not as an evil thing, like God's blessing you. And you're like, no, get it away. I don't want it. That's not it. You're receiving it. You're enjoying it. That's why he gave it. But then you're sharing it. This is the first Timothy six where Paul says, um, we don't want to set our hope on riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And then he says, and we're to be generous and eager to share and be rich in good works. And so it's supposed to be, we enjoy it. And then it overflows from us to other people. So there's generosity as a kind of test of whether or not we're hoarding and loving the things of earth too much. And then the last one is suffering um, because suffering is when the good things that, that God gives are taken away or not given. So the, the longings that you have that God doesn't meet or is not meeting right now, or the things that are good, that come that he removes the lord gives the lord takes away and what do you do in that moment tells you where your heart is and i think sometimes for people this this i think is is maybe one of the more when i've when i've heard feedback i'll put it this way when i've heard feedback about both of these books the chapters on suffering really resonate with people partly because what i'm saying is the depth of the grief that you feel when your parent dies i lost my dad in the middle of writing all of these books years ago my dad died of dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And uh, losing my dad was incredibly painful. And um, so we faced loss in our community, among our friends. And so Christians who love God and know that he's supposed to be supreme sometimes can really struggle with the guilt over their grief because they're like, it hurts too much. I mean, am, am I, is the depth of my pain at the loss of my dad an indication of idolatry? And it yeah. just, it's just kind of running in the back. And a big part of what I was trying to do is to say, no, it hurts as much as it's worth. 
And he and my dad was valuable because God made him and gave him to me as a gift. And therefore, so, so to feel the depth of grief is a good thing. It's a sign of love. And it leads me back to God, who is my heavenly father and who gives and takes away. And so that how do we grieve? Do we grieve deeply, but we don't curse God? And so this is where Job becomes actually a great, a great model for us. I think that this is what that the book does for us, at least those first chapters do, especially where we say Job loves his family clearly, loves his wife, loves his kids, and then loses everything. And he says both the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He's grieving sackcloth, ashes, but he doesn't curse God. Even when his wife says, curse God and die, this is, and he says, that's foolish. I'm going to receive both from the hand of God. And, uh, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to commend. That's the suffering counterpart of the enjoyment of the things of earth. It's what do you do when they're lost? And you need, it's the same thing. Both are there. The supremacy of God, but the pain over the loss. Mm. Yeah, that's so, that's a, such a helpful way that does in, in some ways it really feels freeing because it embraces the pain and the suffering and it gives us permission to feel that and not stuff that down because it actually does testify to the gift giver, not just the gift itself. Yeah. Um, right. I want to go back briefly to your comments about generosity uh, being yeah. a helpful test as well. So we often think of generosity in terms of money, but there's also, as you said, time and our talents and our abilities. But one of the challenges that I think I've felt at times, and I know my wife and I have felt, is we want to be generous, but sometimes we struggle to know, like, well, what, where is, what does that look like? Where is the limit? Because, you know, when it comes to our money, um, it's a zero-sum game. We have to put it somewhere. And so we could be more generous. We could always be more generous, say, to our church or to... Um, starving children in Africa and not go on that family vacation that we're looking forward to that will be a a huge blessing to our family and and enjoyable for all of us. And so how do we know when we're being quote-unquote generous enough? Uh, Is that even the right question that we should be asking when it comes to testing our own desire for enjoying good things? Yeah, that's a a great question. It's a common one. And it is, I think, largely a um, there's wisdom and prudence have to are always a part of this. There's no one size fits fits all. And it, the, the first thing, though, is you really do have to have a full orbed view of it, um, which is part of what I think I was missing in my early years was thinking of it very narrowly and uh, and not recognizing that me giving my time to things is a form of generosity. That's it, it is an actual resource. It's, so generosity is about all that you have, not just the dollars in your pocketbook. That's one thing that you have. And that can be a particular snare. Um, the love of money is the root of all evil, right? That's that is the a biblical teaching, but it's also true that it can be a great blessing. And so, when you look in the um, in the Bible, and you think Jesus said to the rich young ruler, he needed to sell everything he had, and that was a part of you know showing where his idols were. But when Zacchaeus was saved, you know he only gave half. You know he gave half of his goods to the poor. Uh, Barnabas in the book of Acts sells a field um, that he has and puts the money at the feet of the apostles. Um, the poor widow only puts her two pennies in the offering box. And Jesus said, that's amazing. And so the, the, the particulars are always about the person and what God has given you. Um, but one of the tests I use frequently is uh, C.S. Lewis uh, used this. He said, we ought to give until it hurts. So, you know, give until it pinches. And so, uh, and so I think it needs to be, he's particularly talking about, I think, financial giving there is, you ought to be giving, and, and giving doesn't just mean to the church or to missions, as important as those are, 
in all of your giving, are there things that you are saying, these would be nice to have, but I'm going to go without them because I want to do good to others. Hmm. That's the more fundamental question. And that could be a whole lot of different things, even if you don't have a lot of money. So I don't have enough to give in that sense. What else do you have that you can give? Are you, you, the, the standard is be as generous with others as God has been with you. Like just be a conduit of that kind of grace in whatever. And I'd say, you know, you mentioned um, it's a zero sum. I, what I think you meant is I have a budget. There's a certain amount of money coming in and a certain amount going out. So there's at one level, all of it's got to be accounted for. And it would be foolish at some level to sit there and say, well, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to pay the mortgage. I'm just going to give all of this away. Right. And unless God gives you a special grace for that, that you say, you know, if you're a George Mueller, who's like, that's how we're going to live. And I'm going to say to God, this is how we're going to live. And God, you're going to have to supply. I think for most of us, the actual standard is you have obligations. You're giving to your family by paying your mortgage. You're putting a roof over their head. That's a part that you, you shouldn't put that in the I'm not giving. You are giving. You're giving something to your family. And then mm. it's what else? And then it's just overflow, overflow. And you should just be the sort of person that tries to give in every direction and watch if God doesn't make that pie bigger because he knows, okay, that's a person. If I give more to him, it's going to get more places. That's what God is after. He wants you to be the channel of grace, which means you've got to receive it, enjoy it, and then be rich with it. Open-handed, generosity. Um, that's, I think, that's the more fundamental thing, not the, you know, you can pinch pennies and try to, you can have, your heart can be wrong even as you're trying to do the right thing. Hmm. That's so helpful. Maybe a final uh, serious question and a couple fun ones at the end here, Joe. I wonder if someone listening right now might be thinking, yes, I, I can see how uh, there could be some Christians that are so worried about idolatry, so so just single-focused on God and His glory, that they might actually be in danger of spurning God's good gifts. They might be in danger of ingratitude. But they would say, but take a step back and look at where we live. We live in America where we have so much uh, at our disposal. We have so much wealth and so much time, and we spend so much on entertainment. That The real problem facing the vast majority of Christians is decidedly on the idolatry side, that we are often tempted to idolize and that this other temptation is just a minor thing. Do you agree with that? Is there truth in that? Is one of one of these two ditches just way more prevalent and dangerous for us than the other, or do you think it's more complicated than that? I think it's probably more complicated than that. So you, we don't choose the era in which we live, right? So in relation to most of human history, every single person in America, in relation to the vast majority of human history, everybody, rich and poor, modern rich and poor are unfathomably left. We, we have indoor plumbing, right? That's a massive, you know, that's a form of wealth, right? I, I live in Minnesota in the winter and um, <laughs> it would be, uh, it's almost impossible if it, if we didn't have the kind of heating that we have. And so these are all, these are all sort of background kinds of wealth that we just sort of assume and that we ought to give thanks for, right? So I, and I do, I, I regularly remind myself, you know, I'm sitting in here and it's 20 degrees outside and I can do everything that I would normally do. What a gift. What hmm. a gift. I'm not like shivering in the cold, um, trying to make sure that the fire stays lit so that I can get some work done or something. And so there's massive sort of what I would call background wealth. And if your mentality is I've got to get rid of all of the background wealth and the foreground wealth in order to live faithfully, there's something missing. Instead, it's gratitude to God for all of it. 
and then eyes up looking for opportunities to distribute it, to share it, open-handed and eager to share. And so, yes, the danger of, of uh, worldliness and of idolatry, of only thinking of yourself or of only thinking of the gifts is a real and pervasive danger in a wealthy society. But you don't. God's way of fixing that and addressing that is not guilt trips and always looking under everything for the idol trap or trying to divest yourself entirely of the things of earth because that's not how he made the world. He made it a different way. And it was. And so you you want to cut with the grain of how he made it. So there is a real um, be generous, but you're, you're not going to get to generosity and you're not going to get to open handedness by trying to close your heart to all of the blessings that God gives you. You receive them and then you give them. And so that that would be more the counsel. So I would say, yes, there is a real and pervasive idolatry that runs through the world and that can infect Christians um, where we begin to take things that are that we, we must have we, things we must have if we're to keep up with the Joneses. That's a real danger in every generation. And the Joneses are just different in every society. But we're not going to get rid of that. Instead, it's worship God, love God, remember that everything ultimately comes from him and comes back to him. He is the father of light, lights, and every good and perfect gift is from him. And it's meant to lead you back to him. You start there, let that go off like a rocket in your soul, and then out of that, then receive him in everything he's made and give him in everything that he's, he's made. Hmm, so helpful. All right, in keeping with uh, talking about the good gifts of God in this life, the good earthly gifts that he's given to us, I want to hear uh, some of your favorites on some of these categories. So okay. first, what's, what's your favorite food? Um, I really like a good steak. Like I think that, so if it, we're talking about main meal, like a good, well-cooked, you know, well-cooked meaning not well done, like a well-cooked, <laughs> not well done. Well-prepared. Uh, well, a well-prepared steak, I think, is I would say is a really good one. I also I actually okay. See, and then I do it, and I start thinking, oh, there's another one. My actually, if it was my the everybody asked the last meal, if this was your last meal right. before you next day, what would you ask for? There's a uh, there's a Cajun restaurant, Cajun boil restaurant in on the coast, uh, Texas coast that I oh, wow went to every year growing up called the called Boiling Pot, and you have a lot of these places everywhere now. There's you know they're Cajun boil, so it's fish and or uh, crawfish and shrimp and potatoes and sausage and corn with a kind of spicy Cajun thing, and then they come and dump it on the table. That's by far kind of my, that's the favorite. This delicious. All right, favorite sport? Baseball. Not mm. close. Not because close. It, uh, yeah, because it's God's favorite sport. <laughs> that's in the Bible somewhere, I think. That's right. All right, genre of music? If uh, So I like, I would say kind of folk, folk-ish. So, um, you know, a- Andrew Peterson, Gray Havens, sorts of stuff uh there's some some guys doing psalms in that mode uh, nowadays that have a little bit of that flavor so i'd, I'd say that kind of thing would mm. be what i would listen to just for fun andrew peterson is a great example i think in, in some ways of what we were talking about before where some of his music it celebrates the earthiness of our lives and the goodness of god in those things absolutely he was definitely one of the uh one of the influences in producing all of this was was his music for sure mm. all right favorite vacation spot uh, that would be the same, the same place I mentioned with the, the place with the restaurant. Well, growing up, my family <laughs> went down to the Texas coast uh, every summer. We had a uh, my grandparents had a house down there, and so we would go there every summer for I think 18 years of my life, and then actually into college. So uh, we don't get back there as much because we live really far away, but we do periodically. And so that was kind of always the the vacation. And I'm a creature of habit. I'm not a big 
I got to go see all the things, all the places. I really like the. I'm going to go to the place that that feels like home away from home. Hmm. All right. Last one. Your favorite hobby. And you can't say writing. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I would say, I don't know if it counts as a hobby, but if the thing that I enjoy doing in the, in the downtime right now is coaching my kids in baseball. So I, mm. uh, my, I have two boys, uh, three boys, but two of them are old enough to play baseball, 13 and 11. Uh, and so for the last, I guess, six or seven years with my oldest, um, I've had the joy of coaching their, uh, their teams. And, uh, and now I have, since they're both in it, I, I assistant coach both teams so that I can get to all of them. And I would say from about right now, this is the time of year when it picks up and runs kind of through the end of, uh, end of July here in Minnesota. That's what I spend all of my, not all, most of my non-working hours are spent doing that. Mm. And I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. Mm. Well, Joe, thank you so much for talking us through uh, these these difficult tensions that we sometimes feel in our hearts, but uh, hopefully offering us uh, a breath of fresh air and a, a bit of calm as we think maybe more biblically about some of these things uh, and how we can honor God with our lives. Thanks. I'm so glad to talk about it. That was Joe Rigney on Enjoying the Things of Earth. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Strangely Bright, Can You Love God and Enjoy This World? Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.